Well, we are obviously coming to God's Word, and we are bringing our summer, summer sermon series to a close. That is what is going to take place for the next two sermons this week. And next week, bringing this to a conclusion, a series that has focused on the community of believers we are to be here at EBC and the need that we have for one another. If we are going to be growing disciples in Christ and bring his gospel to this valley. And for the last eight weeks, we have heard the warnings, the warnings of being that rogue Christian who separates himself from God's people. We've seen the threats that can destroy a community of believers, selfishness and manipulation, factions and envy. In the words of Paul, these are the things that are the deeds of the flesh that devour a church. We've looked at the calls to unity, the calls to forgiveness, the calls to personally produce the fruit of the Spirit, to what we saw last week in the need to come under the authority of God's Word and apply His Word to our lives. All of these are essentials if we are going to be a community where discipleship flourishes. So as we bring this series to a conclusion, we now look to the path ahead. We want to answer the how question. How do we maintain this kind of community we have been called to be? How do we maintain that? How do we personally foster a church where divisions cease and disciples grow? And to answer those questions, we turn our attention to the book of James. Join me in James chapter four, and we have that collective groan. We are going to James. We know that he's pointed. We know that he's personal. That's why I'm catching a plane at three this afternoon, and I'm heading out for the next 10 days. So what you hear, you can write emails, but those emails are not going to be returned to you for at least two weeks. James chapter four. James chapter four. And what we see here is James confronting a body of believers where Christian unity and selfless love and one another care and gospel camaraderie was not taking place. Discipleship was floundering. In fact, divisions were growing. That's the context of verse one. Notice James asks, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? This is a quarreling church. Word quarrel there, it's a warfare term. Translate it this way. What is the source of the war you are in? The picture here is of a prolonged battle campaign. Victory at all costs, no matter the casualties suffered. This was a church in conflict. From those intentional international wars, the quarrels, to now the specific Separate skirmishes. These are the hand-to-hand combats, one-to-one conflicts, those interpersonal arguments that plague believers. Notice both terms are in the plural. These are quarrels. These are conflicts. There's a battle over here, a battle over there. There's antagonism between these two people. There's a disagreement between these two people. When one disagreement ends, another one begins. This is the church filled with folks who are always able to find some problem, some complaint, some fight. 
And even though these believers had experienced the uniting love of God, that they had been called to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, though they had been united in their worship to their savior and united spiritually under the cross of Christ and united in truth because of the word of God, they were splintering before James's eyes. If you want to distinguish the two words, quarrels, refers to the underlying state of hostility. This deals with the heart, unresolved resentment, unforgiven bitterness. Conflicts refers to the specific outbursts of that hostility, abrasive words, lying lips, cliquish factions, harsh emails, behind-the-back gossip, evil stares, and you can fill in the blank with your favorite weapon of this warfare. These are quarrels and conflicts that James then describes, look at verse two, as murder. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Not literal murder, but this is spiritual manslaughter. This character assassination. And why was the church killing one another? Because, verse 2, they were envious and could not obtain. And note here, James is not talking about failing to get the physical items you want. It's not what he's talking about here. James is talking about failing to obtain the satisfaction these people thought they would get by winning those interpersonal arguments. Despite all of their envy and lust and jealousy on the inside, despite all of the external arguments they wage against one another, these believers were never able to obtain the satisfaction they sought. Ever been there? Happens all the time. They're not able to obtain the happiness, the joy they craved. Go back to James 1 for a moment. Look at verse 20. This is the principle that he's drawing off of. Chapter 1, verse 20. The anger of man never, it does not achieve the righteousness of God. Never does. That's the principle here in James 4 for interpersonal conflict. Back to James 4, 2. Even still, they're not able to obtain this, so what do they do? They just keep on fighting. Finish the verse, so you fight and quarrel. Moving in verse three, we see the selfishness of the church. You ask, you pray, why? So that you may spend it on your pleasures. So the selfishness toward one another translates now into a selfishness toward God. The selfish heart and then shows itself in the tearing down of one another. That's why James issues his command in verse 11, do not speak against one another. One commentator put it this way. Is there anything sadder than such a church? How can such a church advance the cause of Christ? It can't. A church filled with anger and strife refutes its own message. 
It says to unbelievers, come to Christ and he will change your life. The unbelievers all around laugh and say, why is it that he has not changed you? Well, amen that, heard one. And that's okay. Joseph said it, you can amen. But if we're not diligent, this is the church we can easily become, right? If we do not actively seek to maintain a discipling community, disunity, mark it, disunity will enter the church and stagnate any gospel impact we might have in this valley. While believers look at us and hear the message and they ask, why has the gospel not changed us? So it brings us to the how question. How do we maintain a community where fighting and quarreling cease and discipleship flourishes? How do we make sure we are a manual Baptist church, not a manual bickering church? Well, James tells us, and he is to the point, and he holds no punches, start in verse four. Listen to James's words. You adulteresses, that's quite a way to start. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? There are five commitments here, five commitments we must make in order to be that discipling community of believers we have been called to be. Five commitments we must make so that we are not that community that quarrels or fights or devours or backbites or wars against one another. Let's look at commitment number one. We'll get through all five this morning. Commitment number one, if we are going to be a community where discipleship flourishes, number one, we must recognize the seriousness of a fractured church. We must recognize the seriousness of a fractured church. Up to this point in James's letter, he's referred to his readers with an affectionate phrase. He's called them brethren. 
other places. My beloved brethren. He'll use that phrase in verse 11, calling again the people brethren. But not in verse four. In verse four, James's words bristle. He calls his readers, you adulteresses. No stronger term could be used. This is meant to shock his readers. It's meant to stop them in their tracks. The question is, what is the spiritual infidelity they were committing? Answer, they were flirting with, they were being seduced by the world, verse four, the evil world system controlled by Satan. That's why James asks, do you not know that friendship, partnership with the world is hostility toward God? And the answer we should give is yes, James, we know that. We understand that. Worldliness is evil. We believe Romans 12, we must not be conformed to what? This world, but transformed into the image of Christ. We know 1 John 2, it's clear, do not love the world. 2 Timothy 4 is sobering. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He's made shipwreck his faith. That's why James says in verse four, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, shocking language, an enemy of God. Think of Psalm 68. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies. Or Isaiah 42. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. The point here is clear. Worldliness is evil and God hates it. But the worldliness James has in mind here is not how we normally define worldliness. Let's take a survey, define worldliness. I know what I would see. It's the things we watch, right? The things we listen to, the company we keep, the cultural values we adopt. That's worldliness. Think of that old Baptist line, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do, right? Why? Because that's worldliness. That is not James's definition of worldliness. James's definition is much more personal and pointed. The worldliness James is writing about here are the quarrels and the conflicts and the disunity that sabotage a local church. Just connect this warning to verse one. It's the quarrels and conflicts. Why are you fighting? It's the pleasures that wage war. And James calls that Friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. Why? Because it is at its very heart, conflict is at its very heart, orchestrated by the God of this world. It's energized by him. 
well, if we allow those quarrels and conflicts to enter, if we take part in them, we're becoming a friend with the slanderer of the saints. It's the one who sparks slandering God's people. Jesus describes Satan as a murderer from the beginning. He's the one who sparks those character assassinations within God's family. It was Cain, Cain, the pinnacle of the world who fought against Abel. Abel didn't fight against Cain. It was Lot, seduced by the world's sinful pleasures, who quarreled with Abraham. Abraham did not quarrel with Lot. It was Absalom who waged war with David. David did not fight against Absalom. The point James is making is that the quarrels and conflicts and interpersonal infighting that unfortunately is so common throughout churches those are actually forms of spiritual adultery. They're forms of spiritual adultery that finds its root in Satan, the devourer, the murderer. And they place us on the precipice of becoming an enemy of God. That's the point of verse four. So if we are going to promote a discipling community here at EBC, then we each must recognize the seriousness of a fractured church. That is the work of Satan, not the work of God. Leads to a second commitment we must make. If we are going to maintain a discipling community here, commitment number two, we must submit ourselves to the unifying work of the Holy Spirit. We must submit ourselves to the unifying work of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse five. Do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose. He, God the Father, jealously desires the Spirit, his Holy Spirit, which he has made to dwell in us, to fill us, to control us. It's a tough verse, not only to interpret, but to translate. I was thinking about just skipping over it, decided not to do that. I think the best interpretation goes like this. God is a jealous God. Specifically, he's jealous to be glorified. That's what the scriptures speak to. Exodus 20, I am a jealous God. Exodus 34, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. The scriptures speak to his jealousy for his own glory. And thus... Based upon his desire to be glorified by his children, God the Father gave us his greatest gift of grace. He has given us the Spirit to dwell in us, to seal us, to guard us, to sanctify us, to control us, to unify us. That is to say this, connect this back to verses one through four. The Father has given us this necessary resource, his spirit, so that we can fight against every interpersonal skirmish we might encounter. He has given us the spirit to squelch any conflict amongst his people. He has given us his spirit to bring us back to him in confession and repentance 
when we do adopt the values of this world, when we do fight and quarrel. And why has the Father done this? Because he is a jealous God for glory, but he's also a gracious God. Continuing to verse six. But in contrast to the God of this world, in contrast to the selfish lusts that tempt us to tear one another down, but he, the Father, gives us what? A greater, a greater grace. It's a comparative word, greater grace through the giving of his Spirit. The Father has given us a grace greater than our selfishness. He has given us a spirit greater than any interpersonal conflict. He has given us a grace that can heal those relationships that may have been sabotaged. Maybe you are, not right now, but through these days, maybe you are fighting and quarreling with a fellow believer. Maybe that's you. James says, do not despair. The spirit indwells both of you. That relationship can be mended to the glory of God. One author put it this way, what comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect to our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. And the context is grace to repent from any unforgiveness, bitterness, conflict. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. There is always more grace. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. He's given us his spirit. And thus there is great hope for us as we seek to be that discipling community we have been called to be because we have been given the sanctifying, unifying spirit of God and he indwells us. He indwells us, he unites us. And thus we must submit ourselves to the unifying work of God's spirit. How? Leads into commitment number three. How do we submit ourselves to the spirit? Here's how, commitment number three, we must confess our part in interpersonal conflict. We must confess our part in interpersonal conflict. Continue verse six. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Drop down to verse 10, turns into a command, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Now keep this within the context of the chapter. James is not talking about pride in general. He's talking about a specific outworking of pride. He's talking about the pride at the heart of the quarrels and conflicts. 
James's message is this. Do you want to be a recipient of the greater, abundant, sanctifying, conflict-squelching, united grace promised in verses five and six? Do you want that grace? Then you must take action. You must humble yourself before the Savior. Break the verse down with me. God is opposed to the proud. That is similar language to verse four. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God opposes this worldliness of interpersonal fighting. He's opposed to the proud. The word opposed here, it's graphic. It's another military term. It means to battle against, to arrange an army. God is opposed to the proud, the pictures of almighty God placing himself in battle attire with all of his soldiers on the front lines readying himself for war. That's the picture. It's a common picture throughout the Bible. Isaiah 11. The Lord will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This is God being warrior. That's how the book of Revelation ends. Jesus in full battle array, he readies himself to judge and wage war. And in those passages, what you see is that God is readying his army to destroy the unbeliever the frightening scenes. But here in verse six, again, shocking language. The one who God is readying to war against is not the unbeliever. This is the proud believer. This is the proud brother. The believer unwilling to confess his proud hearts. Again, relate it back to verses one through four. The one who is driven by selfish passions and is fighting and quarreling with their fellow Christians. James says God will not bestow his sanctifying grace upon that person, that believer. Instead, he will oppose him at every turn. And this is James not making something up. He's just simply taking Old Testament texts, applying them here, Proverbs 15, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Remember, he's a jealous God. Proverbs 16, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. What's the opposition James is talking about? He's talking about God's loving discipline here, the discipline we need. Because he loves His people, he will not allow his children to remain in their interpersonal relationship devouring pride. He will oppose them in the sense of he will discipline those believers unto repentance. But for those who humble themselves, for those who turn from those sabotaging relationships, bring their proud conflicts to an end. Here's the promise, 
promise, finish verse six. God gives, present tense, God continually, unceasingly bestows his sanctifying grace to the humble. It begs this question. In what category do you find yourself? Are you the proud, quarreling believer driven by your own selfish passions? Longing to find the satisfaction of winning the argument yet destroying your relationships? Are you the humble believer on whom God continues to pour out his sanctifying grace? The one who offers forgiveness when offended the one who confesses his envy and selfishness, the one who seeks the unity of Christ's people. What side are you on? The commitment is this. We must confess our pride. We must confess any part we may have played in interpersonal conflict. And what does this confession specifically look like? Continue to verse nine. Be miserable. Be broken. Mourn, grieve over that sin. Word mourn here is grieving as you would at a funeral of a close relative. Verse 9 weep, inner sorrow, now coming out in sobs. Recognize the hurt you have caused your brother and sister in Christ, recognize the harm you have brought to the body of Christ and confess it and turn from it. James then adds, verse nine, let your laughter, that short-lived temporal happiness sin brings, that laughter, that smugness we experience when we have bettered our brother or sister in Christ, let that be turned into mourning and your joy, it's sarcasm here, your relishing of sin, let that be turned to gloom. Is this how serious we take fighting and quarreling amongst God's people? Do we grieve over it? Do we take ownership of it rather than shift the blame? Do we fall upon Christ's mercy and confession and seek reconciliation? Commitment number three, we must confess our part in interpersonal conflict. Leads directly into commitment number four. Commitment number four, if we are going to maintain a discipling community here at EBC, then we must actively turn from our own selfish desires. We must actively turn from our own selfish desires. So the axiom is this, selfishness destroys community. It's the axiom, selfishness destroys community. That's verse one. So James commands, look at verse seven. Submit, the very opposite of selfishness. The word means to line up under Line up, therefore, to God. Line up under God. Submit, therefore, to God. It's another military term. It's how serious James takes fighting within the church. 
It's a military term. It calls us to be soldiers who let our own personal preferences go. Imagine going into the military and saying, I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what anybody tells me. It doesn't care. I don't care what the general says. I'm doing what I want. That doesn't happen, at least for long. Let personal preferences go. Back to verse one, the pleasures that wage war. Verse two, the lust to be right, the envious heart to be honored. Verse three, our own pleasures. We want to be fulfilled. James says, let go of all of it so that you can submit to the calling and the commands and the glory of our general who is none other than God himself. It's a submission to God's glory that requires an active resisting, an active resisting of every temptation towards interpersonal conflict. Look at verse seven, continue it. Resist who? Resist the devil. Keep it within the context here. Resist the God of quarrels. Oppose the father of fighting. Defy the prince of petty spats. Resist him. Do not believe his lies. Do not follow his lead and devour one another with your words. Do not open your ear to divisive gossip. Why? Because those are all the works of the devil. That's worldliness. Rather, we must commit to resist, to resisting them. And when we do, here's the promise, he will flee from you. He will flee from you. Remember, we have who? We have the spirit. But mark it, the devourer, the slanderer will be back which is why we must, verse eight, draw near to God. We resist, we draw near. This is worship language from military language to now temple language. Draw near to God, it's communion, it's worship, it's relationship. Put off, put on principle. You put off slander, you put on praise, you put off gossip, you put on building up one another. And what is the promise? Verse eight, and he, God himself, he will draw near to you. Satan will flee and God will bless. And he will bless both you personally and bless his people corporately. But what does it take? It takes us actively turning from our own selfish desires. leads into the final commitment James mentions here. Commitment number five, if we are going to maintain a discipling community here at EBC, we must remove all harmful speech from our lips. And you're saying, well, what else am I gonna say then? <laughs> we must remove all harmful speech from our lips. Look at verse 11. And you don't need a seminary degree to to interpret this. Do not speak against one another. What does that mean? It means this. Do not speak against one another. 
Do not speak evil about one another. Do not say bad things against one another. Some translations have criticized. It's that idea of harmful, hurtful talk. So the words that tear another person down in order to build yourself up, these are disparaging words, derogatory comments, backbiting speech, self-promoting conversations, malicious gossip. But it's so clear. Do not speak against one another. Oh, how easy this kind of talk can creep into a church, right? Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Here's Paul, he says this, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, that's the word, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. When we think of Paul, do we think of a man who was afraid? I'll tell you this, he wasn't afraid about shipwrecks. He wasn't afraid about being stoned. What was he afraid about? He's afraid that there will be infighting within the local church. Why? Because Paul knows the consequences of such talk. He knows that self-promoting, gossiping, arrogant, tearing down talk kills a community. It can destroy the body of Christ. It's equivalent to the body attacking itself. This is the body of Christ going septic. It's the hand attacking the foot, the feet attacking the hands, the body bloodying itself. Proverbs 11.9 is still true. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. Proverbs 16.28 is still in force. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Look back at chapter three. No doubt James has this in mind. He's just building on it. Three, six. The tongue is a what? It's a fire the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on the fire the course of our life and is set on fire by who? Or by what? By hell, by Satan, the God of this world. Verse 11 is application of that principle. So James issues a present tense command, do not speak continually, do not speak against one another, constantly guard your mouth. Why? Because we are each a part of Christ's family. We are each a part of Christ's family. Finish the verse, verse 11. Do not speak against one another. Here's the key word, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his Brother, drop down to the end of verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor? The emphasis is on our brotherliness, our fellowness with one another. We are not the parent of the household. We're united with Christ. 
And thus we're all siblings. Galatians 3, we are all one in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. How much this should demolish any self-exalting talk and tearing down speech. Who, here's the question that James is asking. Who do we think we are? That's the question, right? That's verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. There's only one. Every time we are tempted to raise ourselves above God's law of love, by bringing the hammer of our own man-made preferential law upon others, we must remember the patience and the pity God showed us when we were his enemy. He is the lawgiver, he's the judge, he can save and he can destroy. When God could have destroyed us, he saved us. He chose patience. He chose pity. And thus James asks in verse 12, who are you who judge? Who are you who speak sinfully against, who tear down your neighbor? Who do you think you are when God has been so gracious to you? This is how we maintain a discipling community here at UBC. Here's how we guard against fighting and quarreling while promoting unity and love. We recognize the seriousness of a fractured church. We submit ourselves to the unifying work of the Holy Spirit. We confess our part in interpersonal conflict. We actively turn from our own selfish desires and we remove all harmful speech from our lips. How does that kind of church sound? Any good? That's the community where discipleship will flourish. How could it not? That's the community we have been called to be. And here's the great thing about it. Our Father has given us his spirit to do this. Father, we are thankful for the call that we have heard this morning. We are thankful for your spirit who indwells us. And no doubt, no doubt, there are sins we must confess. There is selfishness that you have revealed to us that resides in our heart. There are relationships that need to be restored. Lord, by the power of your spirit, give us the repentance to turn, the confession to offer that to you, the obedience to follow these commands that we have heard this morning. We praise you for your love for us, your graciousness to us. May we show that same graciousness to one another. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.